I don't think it would be an overstatement to say that most of the problems in the world is because of pride. <laughs> Almost the basis of every sin is pride. We know better. We think we've got the solution. Our way is better than God's way. Uh, or my way is better than your way. My way or the highway. Whatever it might be. It's always uh, focused on ourselves. And that's really a lot of our problems. Revolve around the fact that we think we are the center of the universe. Our universe. Rather than having God at the rightful place in our lives. Him being central and everything else working out from Christ being first. And this morning, as we look at Daniel chapter 4, we are going to see what we saw coming. We, it's like a slow train wreck. We saw it happening. We knew King Nebuchadnezzar was going to get his. Eventually, we could see the pride just swelling up in this man's life in the first three chapters, and it's coming to a head today. He is going to be humbled Really beyond imagination. It's hard to imagine this happening, but it did happen to a man. Um, And you'll see what it is if you're not familiar with the passage here in just a minute. But as we we get into this uh, passage here, this series that we're doing, uh, Living in in Babylon, right? Chapter 4, Pride Comes Before a Fall. That may sound familiar to you, right? Pride Comes Before a Fall. That's a proverb. And... uh, and so, but I thought before we actually start reading any scripture here, we probably ought to talk about what we mean when we're talking about pride. Because I think there can be um, a positive sense of the use of the word pride. I mean, um, if you're a student, you could say, well, I've got school pride. I, you know, uh, I was a Miami East Viking myself. Okay, you have no idea where that school is, and I doubt hardly anybody here does. But Viking pride. I still have Viking. I like my school. And basically what we're saying by that is that word pride in that context, we're saying we, I support my school, right? That's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to say I'm, I'm proud of my nephew or niece or my son or my daughter or my mom or my dad because of this accomplishment or that. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not like evil. Uh, and, and so I just thought it would be good for us to take a look at some definitions here. Uh, so Merriam-Webster.com has, says, having a feeling of pleasure or satisfaction, especially with a person's own achievements or with someone else's achievements. It's really, if I could use the word agnostic, it's really kind of an agnostic definition because it could go either way, whether it's positive or negative. But let's really focus in on what we're talking about today, and that really is the Bible. And on the, on the angle of pride we're talking about today really has a definite negative connotation, all right? And so, pride in the Bible, as we're talking about today, undue confidence in your skills, possessions, and position. Pride is rebellion against God because it attributes uh, to self the honor and glory due to God alone. And so, this is the essence of a sinful pride, okay? And that's really what we're talking about today is really the pitfalls of pride, and we'll talk about, uh, by the time we're done, we're going to talk about some ways to humble yourself so that you might not have to endure maybe God humbling you, okay? Which, it's all going to happen at times, but I think we, we can do some things to, 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 to live humbly before our God. 
So let's take a look here at King Nebuchadnezzar and this first few verses in Daniel chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, open up there. Or if you're uh, using the notes online, the YouVersion Bible app, uh, we have the notes there. Or just any Bible app opening up to Daniel 4. And the first three verses, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. If I didn't know better, I'd say this was the Apostle Paul, right? Opening up like that, right? Kind of like, you know, peace be to you. I mean, who is this guy? This is like, we've had a little bit of a change here because, uh, you know, he's, he's saying, it's almost like what we've got is we're switching gears and the tone is first person. Nebuchadnezzar himself is speaking here in the text. And he's saying, hey, everybody, in some kind of declaration, here's what's happened. He says in verse 2, it's, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Wow. Nebuchadnezzar is something's happened in his life in that he's saying, let me tell you what the God of gods, Daniel's God, has done for me. Um, and, and we know that in the first few chapters, we, he's had glimpses of maybe he's getting it, but then we like, oh, no, he doesn't. You know, he, then he's back to polytheism, you know, believing in multiple gods, and, and Daniel's is just one of many. And, but maybe something has happened here to turn his heart to the living God, to the one true God for him to say this. And what we're going to get is now an account. He's going to tell us an account of what happened to him. Uh, so it goes on, he says in verse 3, how great are his signs, meaning the Lord God, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. This does not sound like the guy who said, I'm the greatest. Right? I'm the greatest. Right? We know people that have said that over time right, in front of cameras, I am the greatest, right? Well, King Nebuchadnezzar, if he had TV time, that's what he would have been, that would have been his favorite saying. I am the greatest. I am the most powerful. I control all these things. You'll do what I say. But now he's saying the God of Daniel, right? His kingdom lasts forever. Something's happened. Something has happened. Before we move on to that something, I do want to talk about this thing that this idea that, you know, here he is giving witness to something that the God of heaven has done in his life. And I think that's just, if there's one time we could say, let's, let's emulate him. Let's emulate him because he's giving witness to what God has done in his life. And that's actually a biblical thing to say, look what God has done in my life. And to give testimony, if you will. Some people use that phrase, you know, what, giving a testimony. It's kind of like telling your story, right? Telling your God story. And if you take a look in Psalm 145, you see some of that going on. So, so Psalm 145 and verses 1 to 7. It's a Psalm of David. It says, I will extol you, my God and King. And bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. 
One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Hey, you know, this is not just for Bible times here. We need to communicate to the next generation, you know, say to you, if you will, your children and your grandchildren, to your peers, that God is alive and working in our lives and to give testimony to the times that he has, that you've noticed. Certainly, there are many times God's working, we don't notice it, right? But plenty of times that we do. Um, one of the things that, uh, just a real practical thing, uh, some people do this time of year, uh, meaning like around Thanksgiving, is they will recount the faithfulness of God. They'll remember His faithfulness, and they'll declare it to one another. They'll share it with one another. And uh, what got me thinking about this is my wife has this um, jar of these rocks. They're smooth rocks, about this big. And they'll fill a jar up, and she's got some markers, and she's going to be spending some time uh, thinking through God's faithfulness and maybe have a word or a short phrase that you could put on the rock and put in the jar. You know, it's just her and I around right now. We're empty nesters, but we need to be reminded of God's faithfulness. And we could just spend some time pulling those rocks back out after they're filled out, thanking the Lord for His mighty works and how He has shown Himself faithful. You know, people do that different ways. That's just one way. Maybe you keep a journal. But, you know, I would just say we need to remember the works of the Lord and we need to pass those works on to those that come after us because they need to know that the God of the Bible is living and active right now. And the only way they're really going to know that is if you tell him, tell him or her how you see God working in your life now. Right? Otherwise, we sort of kind of live practically, what do they call that? Almost like a practical atheist, or there's a word for that. Like we're, You may be a believer, but you're kind of living like you're agnostic or something because you're not, not acknowledging he's doing anything or you're not, you know, not engaging with him or whatever. But this is important that we give testimony or witness to what God's doing in our lives. And, you know, it, it, when we do this with each other, just even outside of the family, if you will, uh, with one another, it encourages one another, right? When I hear of, of God's faithfulness or answer to prayer or how he's helped you, it helps me as a believer. It encourages me because maybe you caught me on a down day. When I'm wondering, is this going to, is God going to come through or I'm discouraged because of this or that. But when you tell me how God's worked in your life, it encourages my heart. And the Bible calls that mutually encouraging one another. And Paul tells us to do that, to mutually encourage one another's, be, to be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, actually, is what it says. And we need to do that. And uh, here's one time old Nebi got it right. Okay. That's short for Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and so he, he got it right in that he's giving testimony to the works of God. And so we need to do that as well. I mean, you could go on there. He says in, in Psalm 147, um, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Right? There's that idea of calling to mind. Call to mind. Meditate on the works of God. Not just Scripture, but 
your life experiences with him. That's important. That's important. It says, they shall speak of the might and of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. And it just goes on. This is just one example of one psalm where the psalmist is saying, let's remember the deeds of God. Let's tell one another about them. Let's sing about them, things like that. So the first few verses just bring to mind just this witness that Nebuchadnezzar gives of the work of God. And then we have this, this fact here in, in verses uh, 4 to 18 that God gave the king a troubling dream. He gave him a troubling dream. In fact, if you look in verse 4, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. It's kind of like, you know, guys, you're in your man cave. You're chilling, watching a movie, enjoying in the prosperity, right? He's just relaxing, right? He, and he falls asleep, though, and he has a dream. He says, I saw a dream that made me afraid, made me afraid as I lay in the bed the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So this dream that he has is really freaking him out. He's, he's, he just doesn't know what's going on. So I'll, I'll kind of shorten it up here, but basically he calls for the, calls for the Babylonian wise men. He says, hey, come in, tell me what this means. And of course, in the usual course of things, they couldn't figure it out. So in comes Daniel, right? In comes Daniel in verse 8. He says, and this again, remember this is the king recounting. He says, at last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the, day, the, the dream saying, and then he goes on to say the visions in his head. Here, verse 10, the visions of my head as I lay in my bed were these. So here it goes. Here's the dream. And I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches. And all flesh was fed from it. So you got this huge tree. It's blessing everything around it, basically, right? And then it says um, in verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in my bed and behold a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. So this being comes down from heaven, calls it a watcher. It says, verse 14, he proclaimed and said this. So here's what the watcher says. Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Have you noticed what's happened? We've gone from talking about a tree to talking about a he. That, that uh, literary device, right, called, uh, what is it? personification, right, where you give attributes of personhood to some inanimate thing, right, or in this case, a tree being like a person, right, and so uh, so he, he's saying, uh, you know, chop this thing down, 
uh, but leave this stump, right? And, and so that it will be among the tender grass of the field and the dew will fall on it from heaven. It says, let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Verse 16, let his mind, so whoever this tree represents, basically, it says, let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. So, uh, and, then, and then it says, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers and the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over it uh, sets over it the lowliest of men did you get that phrase there where it says to the end that he's saying the purpose the purpose of this vision is so that people will know that the most high meaning the lord god the most high rules the kingdom of men right in other words nothing's going on down here that God's not in control of. And we have seen this theme, right? This uh, You might call it the sovereignty of God. We've seen it repeated over and over in the book of Daniel that God, we used, I used the phrase last week, is large and in charge, right? He's in control. Nothing is happening in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom that God's not allowing to happen, okay? And so, so, so then Nebuchadnezzar says, this, the, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and now he wants, he wants Daniel to interpret it for him, okay? All right, so before we go into the interpretation, I want to just reflect a minute here on the fact that it seems like God is using this dream to try to wake up Nebuchadnezzar to his pride, right? He's trying to get his attention. He's trying to get his attention. And it just got me thinking about all the different ways or various different ways that God works to get our attention. And, for example, you don't have to go there, but you can write this reference down. Esther chapter 6, verse 1. Remember, we spent some time in that book of Esther here during the pandemic, somewhere along these seven months. We went through the book of Esther. And one of the things we learned there was that the king had a sleepless night. Do you remember that? He couldn't sleep one night. And, uh, and so he had a restless spirit, and the Lord would not allow him to sleep, basically. I mean, it didn't explicitly say that, but remember we saw that God's hand was kind of the invisible hand that was working through that whole book, through that whole scenario. And so do you remember what he did to cure his insomnia? Might know? Let's break out the, the book of record. It's kind of like, let's start read, reading the court transcripts. I mean, if that won't put you down, I don't know what will, right? He, he's like, he, they have a record of every decision he's ever made or, or anything that was noteworthy. And he comes across that record of how Mordecai informed his people of an, that, an attempt that was going to be made on his life. So he effectively saved the king's life, and he never really acknowledged it. He didn't honor Mordecai in any way. But now he read the record, and he's like, oh, uh, yeah, let's, let's bless that dude that saved my life. Right? And then the story goes from there. But God used a restless spirit, if you will, a, a sleepless night to get his attention. I wonder if the Lord's ever done that for you. I wonder if he's ever allowed you to not sleep, 
to have trouble sleeping. And, and not, that that, not that every time that you can't sleep, it's because God's trying to talk to you. Uh, maybe it's a, a lot of extra sauce on your pizza did it, you know, or something else. But, but maybe, uh, and so I always encourage people that, hey, if you're up and you can't go to sleep, why not spend some time with God? Spend some time in His Word. Seek Him. Say, God, is there something you're trying to share with me? Is something that you want me to see, to read, to learn? Um, be open to that. Uh, be open to that. That's happened to me a couple times where God has impressed some Scripture on my heart while I was reading when I couldn't sleep. Uh, and so I'm just trying to draw our attention ways that God might try to get our attention. Another way is just a word from another person, something that somebody shares with you. And I'm not saying that this is on the level of Scripture, that somebody comes to you and say, you know, I'm giving you the word of the Lord here or whatever. Uh, but... But, you know, they may share something that they observe about your life that you need to hear or, or just a word of encouragement or something and, uh, or maybe a word of reproof. Like um, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1, we have this encounter that Nathan calls out King David for his sin. And Nathan, being this incredible prophetic man, speaks in a word picture to him that gets David to really understand his sin and confront him with it, right? Using that whole word picture about here's this guy, this king had all these sheep, had plenty. And then there's this one poor guy over here just has one little sheep. But the king, you know, wanted everything, so he, he took the other guy's sheep, even though he had plenty. And David was outraged about this. because that we need, we need to take that guy out. We need to send our special forces over there and take him down, right? And Nathan says, you are the man. You wanted another man's wife. You could have had plenty. Of, you got plenty of women. You wanted the one wife that was already married over here. And, you know, he was trying to show him. And, of course, he committed murder to, to cover up um, his relationship. And so here we have just an example of God using another person and uh, bringing them along to, to confront and to get their attention. Um. And we need to be open to that fact that sometimes God will be speaking to us or uh, trying to get us alerted to something through someone else. We need to be open to that, which kind of leads me to the last example. Um, well, no, not, not this, but, uh, but our failures. God can work and try to get our attention through our failures. Think back to the people of God in Joshua chapter 7. And verse 5 specifically, God's people were on a campaign to go into the promised land, and they had to battle some people, and they lost. Of course, they had a big, big victory at Jericho, right? The walls came literally tumbling down. But the next spot that they went to, Ai, they lost in a big way. And, you know, all kinds of questions. Man, is God with us? What happened? Right? Well, then they found out what happened, why they experienced that failure, was because someone uh, by the name of Achan took some things that he shouldn't have taken that God said, don't take this certain stuff when we go in to raid these people. Um, and he took some. You know, I don't know if he thought that was his retirement account. He just kind of buried it in the tent somewhere or whatever. But, um, but he disobeyed God, and it affected the outcome of that battle. And so here God used this failure that, in this case, affected the entire Israelite group 
to wake them up to the fact that there was sin in the camp, literally, okay? And sometimes we will experience a failure, and um, something will happen. Uh, we'll we'll kind of hit a wall, so to speak, and uh, we'll wonder, what's going on? And sometimes it's God trying to get our attention, trying to wake us up to something that we know full well that's going on, but we're not acknowledging that we need to address in our own lives. I just want you to be open to the fact that, you know, there are times when the Lord God uh, is trying to get your attention. Maybe you know what that is right now. And don't delay in responding to him in whatever manner you would know he would want you to respond. So, so the king has a troubling dream. God's trying to get his attention. And um, there's, the, there's the thing I forgot to put up there. God will sometimes trouble our hearts in order to get our attention. And the three verses there, Esther 6.1, 2 Samuel 12.1, and Joshua 7.5. So now we run into the portion of Scripture after this, verses 19 to 27. And this is where um, Daniel is going to interpret. He's going to say, listen, uh, here's what this means. And we know that God has gifted this man in the ability to explain dreams. Right? This is a God-given ability that he gave Daniel. And it's been mentioned before, and it's been displayed before, his ability to not only interpret a dream, but one time we know he told the king what his dream was without knowing, right? God revealed that to him. So here we have Daniel interprets the dream. And let me mention a few things here in this passage, verses 19 to 27. So down to verse 22, uh, as Daniel is explaining, he says, you know that tree? In verse 22, he says, it's you, O king, it's you. So he, he explains it right out. The tree is the king, is King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, you, O king, who have grown and become strong, your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven. Remember it said that tree went up, reached up to heaven, right? He says, your influence has, has stretched to heaven in a sense. It, it goes out in your dominion to the ends of the earth, right? And, and so... Then it says in verse 24, this is the interpretation. So here we go. Daniel's going to lay it out. O king, it is a decree of the Most High. In other words, God's telling you this. Which has come upon my Lord the king. Verse 25, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. There you go again. We get the emphasis on what is the purpose of the dream. He's trying to get his attention that you are not God. The Lord God is God. Okay? That's what he's trying to point out. And so he's saying, you're going you're gonna to be... You're going to be crawling around like an animal. You're going to be eating the grass of the field. I mean, talk about humbling, right? I've had some humbling circumstances in my life. I don't think I've ever had that. Well, I can say I definitely have not had that, okay? Okay, I've definitely not been crawling around eating grass, and if I have, I'm sure Linda would have called out to you, okay, <laughs> saying, help, help, right? Come and pray, right? And so... 
But this, this happened to this man to humble him, right? And it says, as it was commanded to leave the stump, this is verse 26, as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. In other words, you're going to have some time to still rule once you come to your senses, buddy. <laughs> okay, that's the, that's the Greg Berlau version. It's the, he's saying, listen, that stump that's left there means you're, you're still going to be able to rule. Um, you'll still have some time. And then it says, uh, therefore, O king, verse 27, let my counsel be to you. So Daniel is saying, I'm going to give you a little bit of advice. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So Daniel basically said, listen, I got some advice to you, king. And this is bold, too, because you know who we're talking to, right? The, the mass murderer of the kingdom, right? He, I mean, but he's saying to him, listen, repent of your sin, show mercy to the oppressed, and start practicing righteousness. In other words, wake up to who you, who you are in position to the Lord our God and start following him and start loving people the way he wants you to love them. Because we know up to this point, this king doesn't even know what the word mercy means, right? He probably has never even seen it in a dictionary because all he knows is that anybody crosses him off with their heads or into the furnace or whatever it's going to be. But here Daniel's saying, listen, look at that verse 27. He's saying that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. When I read, when I read this, I think that, you know, maybe it's not a foregone conclusion. Maybe he could humble himself and yet escape what is, might come. God's humbling, okay? Because Daniel's saying, why don't you repent, and maybe there'll be a lengthening of your prosperity. And this just made me think about this. When you go, when we, when we that, that the Lord wants us to live a life of humility and humble ourselves, rather than run into the wall and experience... <laughs> His mighty humbling of us, he'd rather it be self-imposed and to live humbly before him, right? James chapter 4, verse 10, take a look there real quick. James chapter 4, verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Isn't this the way, that, a couple things in my mind about this is that this is the way the kingdom works. It's upside down. The way down, the way up is the way down, <laughs> right? Uh, servant leaders, like leaders in the church are servants. They're not like riding roughshod over people. They're serving the people. And James is saying, humble yourselves and the Lord will exalt you. In other words, the way up is the way down. Humble yourself. I'm always weary of somebody that's seeking leadership out of the box. They come into the church, they want to lead right away. I'm like, okay, well, let's get to know each other a little bit. It doesn't mean that they're a bad person, but it's always a little caution light because you're like, well, do they have an agenda? If they want to lead right away, because we got to know each other. We got to have trust. We got to know, do we have the same values here and all that? But rather than... Um, what you're always kind of looking for is somebody saying, how can I serve? 
That, 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 that's, like, that's like honey on my lips, man. That's like, what does that song say? You know, music to my ears, right? Um, and we have so many people that have that attitude here, um, just of servants. But how can we humble ourselves? I, I ran across a list that uh, Billy Graham's ministry put out. I just want to share some of these with you of ways to humble ourselves. Again, in the context of thinking about, I think that there was maybe a chance here that Daniel's saying, why not repent and maybe you could experience this prosperity and not have to go through this thing. That's just my take. But how do we humble ourselves? And I'll give you some scripture references that go with these. But I'm just going to hit on a few of them. One is routinely, routinely confess your sin to God. Routinely confess your sin to God. Luke 18, 9 to 14. You know, if, if we, we keep short accounts with God, if we're constantly just acknowledging before God, maybe before our head hits the pillow, we think back on our day and just say, God, you know, I wish I had done these things differently. Um, you know, just, just acknowledging before him. It's not like you're, you're not wallowing in self-pity or whatever and beating yourself totally up. And if you're believing in Christ, you know you're forgiven, but you, you want to confess that to God, right? And, and that keeps us, helps keep us humble if we acknowledge just how much in need we are of the grace of God. A second thing that's kind of related is to acknowledge, is to acknowledge your sin to other people. Now, it's not like you go broadcasting it everywhere, but you should have a few people in your life, or at least one, that you can open up to you about or get to the point where you can open out and share your weaknesses with them. It's a healthy thing. It's a healthy thing for me. I've got people in my life that they know all the little nooks and crannies, the cracks, the things that are weak in my life that need work. And I ask for prayer for them, ask for input for them, from them about those areas, and ask to be held accountable for them. And that's something that we should be doing James chapter 3, verse 2 mentions this. In James chapter 5, 16, both talk about confessing our sin to one another. Okay? And there is a healthiness in that. If our, if our purpose is to not only have be held accountable, but to get help. Okay? And that keep, it takes humility to say, I've got this thing I need to work on it, and I need help or prayer. It's another way to humble ourselves. 1 Peter 2.18 mentions to actively submit to authority. Actively submit to authority. God has put people in authority in various places, whether it's government, other officials, teachers, parents, right, uh, for our protection. And we know, I mean, anybody that's been around knows that anybody in a position of power can abuse it. Yes, it happens for sure. But there are plenty of people in positions of power that are trying to do good with it and serve the people, okay? And so um, what, if there's one thing I will say, if you're a parent of, of, of a child, please teach them to, uh, to submit to authority, to honor authority. Um, teach them to think, right, that, you know, they have to learn and discern that you don't follow orders that is sin or is going to commit a crime or something like that. But I'm saying what we need to do is the default ought to be is I'm going to listen to the authority. And boy, we've had a lot of bucking of that whole thing, right? When people don't agree with the rules that have made for the pandemic or how we ought to conduct ourselves in this pandemic or, or you know, whether it's police officers or whatever, 
Um, you know, but, but at the end of the day, God does call us to honor authority because he's the one who's put them, put these positions of authority out there. And it does take humility, right, in a sense to take orders from somebody. Even just think about your boss. I mean, you may totally disagree about how your boss is running things or what they're at, you know, but, it, and, but you know, it's not, you know, maybe they ask for your input, maybe they don't. Maybe you may don't care what you think, but you know if you're going to be in that position, you kind of got to follow how they want you to do things, and that's hard, depending on what, how much your disagreement is and what it is you're being asked to do. Um, but you know, this keeps us humble, doesn't it? Last thing I'll mention before we move on, um, kind of ties into something I said before, and that is uh, one way to humble ourselves is to receive correction and feedback from other people to receive correction and feedback from others graciously. Proverbs speaks to this. Proverbs 10.17. Proverbs 10.17 and Proverbs 12.1 talks about receiving correction. Now, this is hard. Nobody likes to be told you're wrong. Nobody likes to say, you know what, what you're doing over here is hurting me. Or is even if, maybe it's not even a wrong thing, but it's like unloving for that person. You know, uh, I'm thinking particularly about the person that you're living with, maybe. You know, that you, you know, there's not necessarily right or wrong things the way to do things, but there are things that maybe your spouse doesn't prefer you do or the way you do them, you know. Uh, maybe it's the way you load the dishwasher. Maybe it's the way that. I mean, there's not a right, necessarily a right or wrong way, but maybe there's an honoring way to do it. Some of you people know what I'm talking about. All right. It's just we need to be able to receive correction from each other and uh, when we do so, it does keep us humble. That's for sure. Um, and so the hardest thing, though, is to receive it graciously. Um, if we can somehow, and I think this is where, like, being prayed up, spending time with God makes you much more receptive in a gracious way. Versus if you're not spending time with the Lord and you don't have a soft heart and you, somebody comes at you with some correction, you're like, what are you talking about? I don't do that. You're whack, you know, whatever. I mean, it's just, you know, you, you're not receiving it. You're not even considering it. And that's the thing. You know, sometimes some people have said to me, said things to me before uh, in a manner of uh, their opinion or their correction, and I'll say, well, thanks for sharing that. Let me think about that, you know. Let me, let me evaluate it in prayer. And if it's someone I don't know that well, I'll take it to my wife or somebody else I do know well and say, hey, uh, this, uh, this was said. What do you think? Is there, is there some truth there? Is there something I can learn from that or... You know, is that something we should let go? And I think that's a healthy thing to do is to evaluate that feedback and say, maybe there is something here. Because, you know, we have blind spots in our lives. We have these weaknesses. And, and you know, just like in a blind spot in a car, you don't see it. That's why it's called a blind spot. And you're not going to be the one to see it unless somebody points it out to you. Okay? Just some ways to humble ourselves, and uh, in doing so, you know, the Lord does call us to walk humbly with Him, right? Uh, and so, I think Daniel was trying to point out to Nebuchadnezzar that maybe he could do that if he would repent, but that doesn't happen. Next section of the passage here, God humbles the king, right? And so, uh, 
in verses 28 to 33. One day, so this actually happens a month, 12 months later. It says in verse 29, at the end of 12 months. So some time has passed since he got this word about what this dream was about. And um, one day the king is up walking around on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And some people say that he would have been looking out on this garden, which is one of the seven wonders of the world, this royal garden. Okay? And so he's looking out there and he says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Ooh, it makes you want to step aside and wait for the lightning bolt to come down, doesn't it? I mean, you hear all this, me, my, I, look what I did. You know how great I am? We're like, whoa, man, here it comes. And that's exactly what happens, okay? (laughs) Verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And then, of course, you know, it just ver- the, the word is verified, what was prophesied in the dream there, what was given in the dream is going to happen, right? Go down to verse 33. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers. I'd like to see that. Uh, and his nails were like bird's claws. So, you know, no manicuring, no haircut. Right? I mean, he just looks like an animal. He's acting like an animal. He's out of his mind, okay? Really out of his mind, right? So then what? Well, then in verses 34 to 37, the king comes to his senses, literally comes to his senses here. I'll read these verses. It says, in verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, Remember, he's recounting the situation. Lifted my eyes to heaven. And this is, the, this is the key phrase, isn't it? He lifted his phrase to heaven. He lifted his eyes to heaven. He was, you know, his problem was he was so self-centered and looking down on everybody else that he never looked up to God, really. That was his problem. And so he says, I lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He's getting it, isn't he? He's getting it. There's a breakthrough. God humbled him. He wouldn't humble himself, so God humbled him. He looked up finally, uh, and it says, now look at the verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. Listen, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. I don't think you can end it any better than that. Last words, let it be the Lord's. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much 
that we have this living example of just a reminder that you call us to live humbly before our God. You call us to have you as a uh, have you as the uh, the proper place in our life, the center. You are first. Everything we do is supposed to come out of that, our relationship with you. Lord, help us to be people who, as we started off talking about who who give witness and who, who testify or give testimony to the works of God, that we might hear one another's God stories, encourage one another's hearts, be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, and also to be a witness to those that don't know God, that He's real, He's active, He's living, He's working. Lord, help us to give faithful testimony. And Lord, we do pray that we would be ones who humble ourselves and who receive correction or who are regularly just ready to confess to you and ready to be open to those that are close to us about our weaknesses and ask for help to humble ourselves because where we have here an example of what happens when a man does not humble himself. That you're faithful to do things to get our attention to humble us. Lord, we do thankful, thank you for your faithfulness. In the, in the Proverbs it says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. We have no greater friend than you, Lord, who would wound us in a sense that we might be healed. So, Lord, we ask for your help to be able to walk humbly before you and humbly before one another. Have an honest evaluation of our own hearts. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate example of humility. As it says in Philippians chapter 2, he humbled himself by coming down in the form of a man, in a man's body, his own, in a sense, creation, the creator coming down in the form of a man, humbled himself. Lord, let us walk in the footsteps of Jesus, having the attitude that he had, a humble attitude servant's attitude, wanting to do your will above all else. Lord, we need your grace. We need your mercy to do it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.